0: Welcome to What They Never Told Us, the podcast where we explore our own personal journeys in the hopes to give you some insight into your own narrative. I'm your host, Sasha, licensed mental health
1: counselor. And I'm your host, Crystal, licensed social worker. Yes, we are mental health professionals. However, we are not experts on anyone else but ourselves. You are the only expert on you. The information shared or discussed on this podcast is not a substitute
0: for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Today, we are going to finally, finally be discussing what we promised uh, we discuss, which is attachment. So from here on out, once we start talking about attachment, you're going to understand exactly what we mean, because we're going to break it down. Uh, we're going to discuss everything that I had, all the little details of it. But before we do that, we're going to do a check-in as always. So Crystal, how are you today?
1: Hello. Um, I think logically, I think I'm feeling good. (laughs) And then I've, I'm, I'm realizing that I'm doing a lot of my anxious, like mannerisms, like tendencies, um, like not sitting still constantly, like going on social media and like a lot of like the body anxious mannerisms that I have. Uh, so I feel like I should probably at some point sit because even though I don't, I don't feel anxious and there's not like one thing that I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling this. Um, like since I woke up since last night, actually, um, now that I think about it, I feel like I've been in distraction mode and kind of like trying to put my energy somewhere, which is where the body mannerisms come in. Like I should probably sit down and figure out. What the maybe not even figure out what it is, but just sit down and maybe do a meditation to kind of like ease the mind. Consciously, I think I feel okay. Like I have to be really observant of how I'm behaving.
0: No, yeah, I we talk about that all the time. Where you know your body's telling you something, and um, it's weird because you read it in textbooks, and then the minute and they tell in the textbook suggests you know just sit with it analyze it look at it and you're like what the fuck are they saying but then the minute you sit down and you clear your mind it's almost like it's like I I don't know like something floating up in the water like it comes to your mind you're like yo this is what's bothering me oh okay great (laughs) now I gotta learn how to just kind of move (laughs) exactly (laughs) but uh yeah that makes uh, a lot of sense so I hope that you get the time to sit with it and understand it and just accept it um and i'm i'm deflecting look at me i don't want to talk about me Uh (laughs) (laughs) i was like waiting i'm looking at
1: you like so you gonna go uh yeah
0: yo uh i i full transparency i just fucking cried half hour to crystal before we started recording because well, first of all, today's show notes definitely brought shit up for me. And second, I mean, whatever it brought up, it's, it's really raw and emotionally painful. And uh, I think this is what has been distracting me from being able to sleep. It's like, it's like a little monster that lives within me. I mean, yo, know, when come the nighttime, yo, know, it's having a fucking party. And during the day, it's hard to, it's distracting me. Um, but it feels removed from me. I'm just like frustrated that it's not fully gone. But and I'm talking about all these feelings and, and I'm sure people don't know what the fuck I'm saying. Um, it's just a lot of emotional pain. But, you know, and I'm still dealing with things that came up with the breakup. Um, I'll go more into it when we actually start talking about the different topics. But I think that's a, a, a great example what I'm going through and how confused I sound in exactly what this episode might bring up for you. Before we actually begin the discussion on attachment, I think it's important to point out that after this episode, just like myself, you might be left with some feelings. The reason is because it's kind of difficult to reflect on your experiences and begin to recognize that maybe you are not securely attached. I think I logically understand that I'm not securely attached, but when it's like in your face, you're like, oh, fuck. Okay, what do I do with this? Uh, So it feels overwhelming. Just first, I want to say that your feelings are always valid. And also, if it helps you feel any better, you just heard me go on a confusing rant. Obviously, I'm not securely attached, so you're good. We're we're going to keep surviving, I promise. <laughs> Second, uh, it's more a matter of how we react to the feelings that matter. So if you have a crystal in your life who will allow you to cry to them for half hour, please do so. Reach out. Don't hesitate to do that. Um And I also think that, you know, that there's a lot of choice in that, right? So practicing to choose to adjust your behaviors and be better is always an option. So overall, the message is, yeah, I think it might bring up some feelings for you, but please utilize your resources and do what you got to do to choose to be better for yourself.
1: Yeah, so... You know, taking it back to the classroom. What is attachment? (laughs) Attachments and emotional bonds that you build with another person. It's formed in early childhood, which if you remember back to the developmental stages episode, we mentioned the first developmental stage is where you form attachment. So it's like literally infancy (laughs) that you develop it. And that emotional bond continues with you throughout your life. Your caregivers, who hopefully were available and responsive to your needs as an infant, will allow for you to develop a sense of security and let you know that they're dependable and that creates a secure base for you to then go out and explore the world. And then as you grow up, you will tend to exhibit that same pattern of bonds with others, your caregivers, and security because that was your foundation And as I mentioned in the developmental stages episode, if you have a good foundation, you can build the rest of your house right throughout the course of your life. That is attachment in its most basic or, I guess, secure of forms. Um, And attachment was uh, introduced to us by British psychologist John Bowlby, who introduced the theory to the world as the idea of forming bonds with the other. So like on a basic level. It's just forming bonds and connections. And then later in life, uh, Mary Ainsworth, who was also a psychologist, went on to describe three major styles of attachment. Uh, So she described secure attachment, ambivalent slash insecure attachment, and avoidant slash insecure attachment. So basically any attachment that's not secure is insecure, but we're not going to say insecure for each one just because it can be confusing. Uh, And we'll explain that a little bit more in depth in a minute. There's levels to being not healthy, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, basically. There's only one secure (laughs) attachment, and then all of the rest of them are insecure. (laughs) Womp, womp, womp. Uh, (laughs) So John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth laid the foundation, and then in 1986, psychologist main... And psychologist Solomon added a fourth attachment style called disorganized, insecure attachment based on their research. So they were like, ah, 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 there's another level of dysfunction. (laughs) Let's not forget.
0: I wouldn't be surprised if there was like a fifth and sixth one. Like,
1: gosh, no, this is enough, this is enough. So... Why is this even important? Like, why do we even talk about attachment so much? Because y'all like, y'all say that a lot. Um, but really, the principles of attachment teach us that we're only as needy as our unmet needs. Right? Oof. So what does that mean? If we have unmet needs, then we will perpetually look for them in the relationships around us. Right? Like, if you are hungry you're going to like go everywhere, like looking for food, right? Like, cause that's kind of where your mind is at. Like your need, your basic need of being fed is not met. And that's the same for the bonds and relationships that we form with other people. So if we never learn how to feel safe or effectively be in relationships with others, we will continue to recreate the same ineffective patterns with other people that we learned as children, right? Cause a lot of what happens is that You know, as much as we want to be healthy and we want to be in relationship in ways that feel secure, if we didn't learn that, it's really hard to then recreate it or be healthy as you grow up, which is why we always talk about doing the work, right? Like you have to do the work to be in effective relationships and have emotional well-being. And it's the same with attachment. Understanding our attachment styles and working towards feeling secure can help us in feeling fulfilled and have loving, healthy, and close relationships. And as human beings, like we are social creatures and our re- social relationships are really the core of our, our well-being um, or at least one of the main core pieces of our well-being besides our relationship with ourselves. So this is really important stuff, and we we kind of laugh and joke, but this is this is really important.
0: Yeah, and I, I I again the most important piece for me is you're not stuck in your attachment, right? Um, your style, your attachment style is most definitely subject to change. I know that through personal experience, so it's going to depend on who you make friends with and who you get into relationships with, right? It's the most significant relationships that affect us overall in our development. So you are not stuck. Um, There's hope. <laughs> and um, we're also going to be discussing how attachment uh, affects your romantic relationships. So there's like very fairly new research suggesting that adult romantic relationships function similarly to the way infant caregiver relationships do. And that's a weird thought to have, right? Like, yo, like, Oh, am I, I don't know. I remember the first time I realized I was dating my mother, right? Like, and it's mm, funny. I don't sure. know. I don't know how people, yeah, people in cycle get that, but I don't know how other people are going to react. to so like, what the <laughs> fuck? Uh, but I promise you, we, we repeat this pattern over and over again, which is why it's important to start noticing how we're showing up in relationships and how our partner is showing up in regards to their attachment.
1: Yeah. And I think that what happens is that the reason why we recreate the relationships as adults as we did when we were children, is because that's what we know, so that's what feels safe. Even if it's not safe, that it feels familiar. So we tend to recreate what feels familiar because that's what we know.
0: So Crystal did a really good job in explaining who were the founders of this attachment theory. I really like John Bowlby's work because I am somewhat of an evolutionary theorist. I feel like these things come up out of a necessity for our survival, and he believed the same. So... He believed that infants are in search of their parents to have their basic needs met, right? And how do infants do that? They cry, they look for them, they look for their eye gaze. And if you really think about it, we are absolutely, and we mentioned this in the developmental episode, but we are completely dependent upon our caregivers. So there has to be a way that we learn how to communicate with them, even if we don't have verbal expression. It's a motivational system that will be called the attachment behavioral system that was gradually designed by natural selection, right, evolutionary theory, to help regulate how we stay close to our caregivers, not just for the emotional need, but also for the physical need of survival. A lot of the research that has been done in regards to attachment um uses infants and young children. So I would say that one of the most important uh, pieces of observational research is Mary Ainsworth, who Crystal mentioned. her Her research on the caregiver... And infant relationship through what was called the strange situation procedure. So it was in a laboratory setting, and in this setting, the primary caregiver and the infant are placed in a series of eight different episodes that involve the mother, the infant, and a stranger going in and out of the room while the infant is present. So, first, the mother, the child, and the stranger are introduced all together in the same room. And then afterwards, the mother separates from the child and the child's behavioral response is observed. It's observed in eight steps. So step one is the mother, the baby, and the experimenter. This will last less than one minute. Step two, uh, the mother and the baby are alone in the room. Step three, a stranger joins the mother and the infant. Step four, the mother leaves the baby and the stranger alone. Step five, the mother returns and the stranger leaves. Step six, the mother leaves, the infant is left completely alone, nobody in the room. Step seven, the stranger returns. And then step eight, the mother returns and the stranger leaves, right? So throughout this whole process, the observers are starting to note the reactions that the infant is having towards the stranger within themselves, how are they're self-soothing and how they're reacting towards their mother. And the scoring is based on four interaction behaviors that are directed towards the mother, especially step five, the mother returns and the stranger leaves. And step eight, when the mother returns and the stranger leaves, right? Like, so this is where they start to notice what kind of attachment the child has to their mother. So the scoring is based off of proximity and seeking out the mother, um, contact maintaining. So like how long are they engaged with their mother when the mother leaves or when the mother returns? Are they avoiding Um, contact and are they avoiding being close to their mother and are they resistant to contact and being comforted by the mother so this is where they start uh, uh, noting certain behaviors so as crystal said mary ainsworth initially she figured out three different kinds of attachment styles and we're we're going to discuss them in depth now so the first one that we're going to talk about is a secure attachment
1: secure attachment bless all y'all with secure attachment um, i'm such a fucking
0: hating ass bitch on people who have secure attachment
1: <laughs> <laughs> same uh because i'm like life must be good when you know mm. that you feel loved mm-hmm. and appreciated um all right so for so we're gonna briefly talk about what that looks like in childhood and then uh talk a little bit about what it looks like in adulthood because children aren't listening to this podcast so (laughs) (laughs) i mean at least i hope not uh so in childhood securely attached children feel assured by their caregivers that they'll be cared for even when they show distress or when they're separated from their parent, uh, they feel joy when reunited with their parent and they feel assured that their parent will return, right? So like if, if the parent leaves the room, like they might be a little fussy, but in the back of their mind, they know that their parent's coming back because like time and time again, it's been proven to them that their parent comes back. They don't like when their parent leaves, but they feel safe. If the child's frightened, securely attached children are comfortable seeking reassurance from caregivers, and they will turn to a stranger if the situation calls for it, if they can't find a parent, but they will always choose their parent over a stranger if their parent is available parents of securely attached children right like if you want to help ensure that your child is securely attached they play more with their children they react quickly to their children's needs and are generally more responsive to their children when something does come up um, as opposed to parents of insecurely attached children and this just helps the child feel reaffirmed in their attachment um, and their sense of security so Studies have shown that securely attached children are more empathetic during later stages of their childhood, and they're also less disruptive, less aggressive, and more mature than children with insecure attachment styles. In adulthood, uh, those adults who are securely attached, uh, they have a healthy sense of trust in the world they have successful long-term relationships they have high self-esteem they enjoy intimate relationships uh they (laughs) seek out social support (laughs) yo what a defense mechanism Uh (laughs) and and they have the ability to share their feelings with other people Uh, do you know anybody who's securely attached I'm pretty sure I do, um, because you know what's so. This is something that I've thought about a lot. Um, I think that I, as someone who does not have a secure attachment, I feel like I meet and have close relationships with others who also do not have um secure attachments. But when you look at the research, or like the majority of the population has a uh, secure attachment. And then I also, so then I'm like, but where are those people? Because I'm like, I've been out in these streets dating, but right now. <laughs> but you know, like in the past, like I've been out in these streets dating, and I'm like, why have I not met a securely attached, um, or why have I not connected with someone who is securely attached? But then I also think about the demographics of research, um, and I know that we've talked about the issues within research within psychology, that sometimes, at least when it comes to like any sort of positive psychology of sorts um where it's like okay like let's look at who's securely attached it tends to disproportionately represent white people right like white so i i also wonder you know if they did a study of attachment within communities of color or within folks who've experienced trauma like what would the research say so i mean i be- i believe that the numbers are true i just don't know if when they're reporting you know the per- i don't remember the percentage of adults who're securely attached but it is per- like pie um i wonder how many people of color are represented in that pool yeah and not to say that people of color are insecurely attached but i also think like factors like trauma poverty things like that might might affect
0: yeah no think about the the episode we did on our fathers like one in four kids right now in america are growing up without a dad in the household and majority of them are within minority communities so that alone and like and you remember like we talked about the stress that that will put on the the single parent aka the mother right raising them like it's really hard to to be secure when the mother's needs are also aren't being met right like Mm -hmm. so like there's just so many different, especially poverty and access to resources. Like, it's going to affect your the way your parents parent you.
1: Yeah. No, I agree. Um, and that's why I'm like, uh, like, I want, I want more representation in our research.
0: I know somebody who's securely attached. Uh, she's my best friend. God bless her. <laughs> Having people like that in your life can be really um, restorative in small mm. little ways you don't recognize, but at the end of the day, she's the reason I went to grad school because mm-hmm. no one else was asking me, what are you doing with your life? She was the one who asked me. So, I mean, I, I think um, as much as I hate on them, I'm, I'm blessed to have her.
1: <laughs> yeah, shout out to your best friend. In relationships, securely attached people tend to use effective methods to create safety and healthy environments for themselves and their partners when it comes to conflict resolution they don't become defensive they don't try to emotionally or physically harm or punish their partners they have mental flexibility they're not threatened by criticism and they're willing to reconsider their ways or revise their feelings or their beliefs Uh, they're effective communicators they express um, and respond and expect others to do the same for them they don't play mind games They're comfortable with being close to others and will not be upset if someone asserts their boundaries with them because they don't necessarily see it as a rejection of the self. They will actively seek intimacy. They're not afraid of being slighted, right? So like someone who has an insecure attachment might not seek intimacy because they're afraid that they might not get it in return. And they enjoy closeness. They're quick to forgive. They view sex and emotional intimacy as one, and do not leverage either one for the other. Right? So, like, like back to like, they don't play mind games. Um, they're not they're not out here to to mess with your head. They treat others with love and respect, and they take responsibility for their partner's well being. They are confident in themselves, and they feel confident to find solutions in a relationship if there is a conflict that that comes up
0: I just say hashtag goals
1: <laughs> that's what I'm yeah. looking for <laughs> yeah I mean that's that's pretty much it like when it comes to secure and and I will say like Just because someone's secure doesn't mean that they don't experience conflict, doesn't mean that they don't experience challenges, doesn't mean that, you know, they might not have, you know, like, their moments where maybe they exhibit some sort of, like, unhealthy coping mechanisms or behaviors, but what they do have is the resilience to be told about themselves, not take things personally, like, they don't take criticism as an insult on their character and they're able to shift and adapt and just have robust emotional and social relationships
0: so this is the the most positive we're going to be at this point of (laughs) no this is the most positive we're going to be in the podcast uh just putting that out there because the rest (laughs) is a little triggering if you ask me uh (laughs) so secure people got it right essentially. um, That's the goal. Another for style of attachment that uh, Ainsworth discovered is what is known as the avoidant attachment. So avoidant children in the strange situation when their caregivers leave and come back, they don't look towards their attachment figure or while looking at their environment. They're just in their environment. So really quickly, there are two different types. There are subtypes of avoidant, which one is dismissive and then The other is fearful, which is a very low percentage of the population, but they exist. One of them is speaking right now.
1: Uh (laughs) Oh my goodness.
0: So there are two types of avoidance there is dismissive, and then there is fearful. They usually have the same experience with their parents, but the way they react to it is separate. Overall, it seems that they operate independently of their attachment figure, physically and emotionally. They show low separation anxiety, along with low stranger anxiety, and they don't reference their caregiver to explore their world. If they are distressed, they are not going to their primary caregiver. Um, They do not make contact with their caregiver when reunited with them. And they have learned that caregivers are not reliable and intimacy is a dangerous thing, both dismissive and fearful. So the child has come to realize that communicating with their parent will have no influence on their needs or the caregiver giving them what they need. Uh, The avoidant child seems to want to be next to their mom sometimes. They may seem to back into it, but then they kind of go away from it because they realize they might upset the mother. Um, Parents most likely have neglected the child and their needs, and therefore, this is why they don't go to them because they learned not to because they're essentially going to be rejected. So as adults, we can tell we are dealing with avoidance, uh, especially dismissive avoidance. If and dismissive avoidance are majority of the avoidance out there, fearful are a small percentage of that group. So dismissive avoidance will literally act and feel that they don't need anyone. They'll show that to you. They usually have high self esteem and have a really high view of themselves. Fearful avoidance, on the other hand, have characteristics of, this is where it gets a little confusing. They have characteristics of both anxious and avoidant individuals. They need somebody, but like kind of like that child, they'll still run away when things get serious. So they want to lean in, but they can't handle the possibility of being rejected one more time. And yeah, that's personal. So they'll just like bounce and withdraw. Um, They have higher social anxiety, higher depression, and less fulfilling interpersonal relationships. They feel unworthy of support and anticipate others will not support them, right? So they feel uncomfortable relying on others, even if they want a close relationship. A lot of the dismissive avoidance won't be able to retell stories of their childhood because they've literally, I think they've just literally repressed it, right? When asking to tell stories about their childhood with their parents, a lot of dismissive avoidance won't be able to give you details, but they tell incongruent stories. So, for example, when you ask them about their parents, they'll say, yeah, my parent was X, Y, Z. They were great. And you'll find out that the parent wasn't really present or they weren't meeting their needs or they were at work all the time. And then you sit there wondering, like, well, how was your caregiver? Great. When you weren't really with them, right? it's it, 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 Your experience of them and then the way they tell their story could be a little confusing. They have a tough armor on the outside and are not good with dealing with feelings on the inside. In relationships, they come into their partner, right? So you feel them getting closer to you, but then they will back away when it gets too close because it feels wrong to them. They may use uh, deactivating strategies So any behavior or thought that's used to stop intimacy is a deactivating strategy, right? Like, so pretend you're in bed and you're watching a movie. An avoidant is most likely going to turn to you and ask you like, yo, why are you breathing like that? It's kind of annoying. They nitpick on the little things and they make you feel a little less than, which in turn will make you feel anxious. And then they'll make you feel like there's something wrong with you, right? Right. Most avoidants have a difficult time having a relationship because they have unrealistic expectations. So this is for both dismissive and fearful. Like dismissive has unrealistic expectations because they live in a world where it's just them. They have learned to become self-sufficient. They feel self-reliance is one of the most important things to function. But at the same time, people with high self-reliance, they have low social skills and they don't engage in intimacy um, the same way other people do it. They're, they're lower on the scale. They actually feel that relying on someone is a weakness, so therefore they lean into the self-reliance. As opposed to the fearful avoidant, they really want to lean into somebody but they're just so terrified of doing so because they don't want to be rejected. So all these things will be brought into their romantic relationships, uh, therefore reducing the ability to be intimate and in tune with their partner. The one thing that I know about a healthy relationship is that you have to be intimate and in tune with your partner for it to function effectively. So most relationships with avoidance will only go as far as they let you, basically.
1: I did want to just add a little bit to the avoidant. Uh, piece. Uh, I read this great book. I, I highly recommend it to anyone and we'll um, put a link to it in the show notes. Um, and it's called Attached, The New Science of Adult Attachment and How It Can Help You Find and Keep Love by Amir Levine and Rachel Heller. In their book, they only describe Mary Ainsworth's three attachment style so they don't talk about disorganized attachment which we will talk about in this episode basically what they say about folks who have avoided attachment is that they always romanticize their ex um, because they're mm. always looking at them with rose-colored glasses meanwhile their ex was not actually a good partner which um, relates to what Sasha was saying about them being incongruent with their beliefs about their relationship with their parent. They kind of say it was a good relationship, and then when you get to the nitty-gritty of it, it actually wasn't. Or they're always searching for the one, the one person that's going to make them finally have a healthy relationship, like their soulmate, etc. And the reason for this is they often see their partner, like their current partner, as the problem and not themselves. So they think that if they find someone else that they, that will be a better fit, the relationship will be better without really realizing what the dynam- what their dynamics in the relationship are that's contributing to it not being a healthy one someone who's uh, avoidant, uh, Sasha had mentioned that they will want to, like, detach or kind of remove themselves from their partner, um, and they have, like, active strategies to do that. Um, not necessarily conscious ones, but these are things that they consistently do. So some things that you might find in someone who has avoidant attachment is that they say that they're not ready to commit, but then they stay in a situation for years or they stay in a relationship for years, even though they said that they weren't ready to commit. Um, they focus on their par- their partner's small imperfections, like similar to the example that Sasha gave um, about the chewing, <laughs> and they use that as a way to feel less love for their partner because the intimacy just makes them so uncomfortable. So they have to nitpick so that they can say, "Ooh, I don't like how they chew." I don't like them. It's a way to detach emotionally. They lust for their ex or they lust for for the one which keeps them either in the past or in the future and not in the present, not in the current relationship that they're in. They'll flirt with others, you know, in order to kind of make their partners insecure. They won't say that they love their partner and make it seem like they may have feelings for someone else, even if it's not true. Again, it's just to kind of make their partner feel insecure to kind of remove the attachment. When things are going well in the relationship, they pull away. They may search for love with someone who's not actually available, like a married person or someone who's already in a relationship. They'll check out when their partner is speaking. They'll be vague and sometimes keep secrets. And they sometimes avoid physical closeness, like not wanting to hold hands in public. They may not want to cuddle. Um, And those are just, again, ways to emotionally... And physically detach from their current partner.
0: You know, this is what was so difficult um, for me in doing the notes for this episode. Because first of all, I'm fearful avoidant. If you didn't catch that earlier. I, second, I just got out of a relationship with someone who's dismissive avoidant. And all these things went down on both ends. Right? Like it was the weirdest dynamic that I've ever been involved in. And um you know, it's crazy to me because avoidance do this thing where it kind of feels like they don't want to be in the relationship, but then they're saying, and then you're like, what the hell is going on? And I do think it was on both ends, uh, for different reasons. So avoidance will most likely self-sabotage intimate relationships because of the fact that like going back to what Crystal said, they are extremely uncomfortable with intimacy, right? Like, so they'll, they, they don't even compliment you. And that's real personal. Uh, (laughs) Their their boundaries and their rules, their ways of doing things. It's super set in stone, and like you can't mess with the schedule. And it it just it's um, you know you're in a relationship with one of these people because you will sit there thinking, does this person even like me? (laughs) Um, and that is a very real and personal experience because. I remember feeling that way and reading these notes, doing these notes and reading it. And it's just, um, yeah, it's it's a lot to deal with. And that's how you know you're with someone who's avoidant.
1: Yes, or that you are avoidant. So uh, the next attachment style that we have is anxious attachment, or it can be called ambivalent attachment or anxious preoccupied attachment. This is actually a really uncommon uh, attachment style with only about 7 to 15% of the US population, uh, US children having this type of attachment. Again, the numbers are low, but like we mentioned earlier, I'd be curious to see um, how racially or ethnically diverse the pool is. As a result of poor parental availability. Uh, children with anxious attachment can't depend on their primary caregiver to be there when they need them. Uh, these children become very, very distressed when a parent leaves. Um, so kind of going back to Sasha's example of the strange situation experience, like this child might be like throwing a tantrum on the floor if their parent leaves. Like they'll, they'll become really distressed. So children who are actually attached they are extremely suspicious of strangers um these children can display considerable distress when they're separated from their parent or their caregiver um but they often don't seem reassured or comforted when their parent returns right like if the parent leaves and then comes back um And in some cases, the child will passively reject the parent by refusing the comfort that their parent or caregiver gives them once they return, or they may openly display direct aggression towards that parent. Um, So basically, they kind of feel a little bit maybe like resentful that that the parent left because it caused them so much distress that they kind of like want to give them the cold shoulder a little bit.
0: Basically, anxiously attached children are unsure if their parent if their parent could be used as as a secure base or not, and that reflects in the behavior. So that's why their behaviors are super contradictory because they mm-hmm. themselves don't know where to feel safe and secure.
1: Yes, as these children grow up, like a teacher might describe them as clingy or overly dependent because they will try to connect um, and build relationships, but in unhealthy ways. So as adults, those with anxious attachment often feel reluctant about becoming close to other people. And in relationships, they worry that their partner won't reciprocate their feelings. So they're afraid that um, their partner will reject them. So they might often break up with their partner or um, because they feel that the relationship is cold and distant. But if the relationship ends, they'll feel especially distraught, which is the same pattern that you see in them as children, right? Like they're recreating that relationship. So in relationships, anxiously attached folks tend to jump to conclusions very quickly and they misinterpret situations or other people's emotional states. So meaning like, You know, maybe someone set a boundary and they take that as a rejection as opposed to this person just needs that boundary respected and that's not a reflection on them. They experience what we call states of activation and that is when the person, the actually attached person, perceives the relationship is threatened. Um, whether the threat is real or imagined. So they'll have um, their attachment style activated, which will make them feel a heightened sense of anxiety. And they won't feel okay until they get the reassurance that they need, that the relationship is safe, and that their partner is engaged. Some of the things that they'll think about when they're in this state of activation, like attachment activation, is they'll, they might only remember the good uh, qualities of their relationship. They might put their partner um, on a pedestal and underestimate their own personal qualities but then overestimate their partners. They'll be in an anxious state until their partner returns so they can't feel settled. They believe that that relationship that they're in, even though it's not a healthy one, is their only chance at true love. They think that they're not compatible with anyone else and that this is the only partner that they are compatible with. And even though they're unhappy, they don't want to let go. They don't want to let go of their partner because they don't want their, their current partner to then be a better boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, to the next person. When they have these thoughts, when their attachment is activated, they'll start to exhibit what we call protest behaviors, actions, things that they do to reestablish contact with their partner to get their attention. They might do things like make excessive attempts to reestablish connection, like calling, texting. They may withdraw and they will really just ignoring them on purpose in the hopes that their partner will notice That they're upset. They'll keep the score. They keep time on how long their partner took to call them back. Like, let's say like, you know, I called you, you didn't call me back for an hour. So then they'll be like, all right, now I'm going to, now I'm going to ignore your call. And now I'm not going to call you back for an hour. So they'll like keep score on things like that. Um, they might act hostile, like rolling their eyes, ignoring their partner while they speak. And sometimes, unfortunately, like may resort to actual violence. They will threaten to leave saying, I can't do this anymore. Meanwhile, they don't actually mean that. Again, it's just kind of like an empty threat. And for a bonus, because I've been an anxiously attached person, I think my style has changed uh, recently. They sometimes will actually leave the relationship. And this is something that I've done. in the hopes that their partner will, like, come groveling back and the partner doesn't come back and it leaves them in a state of complete distress. So, womp, womp, been there. Uh, (laughs) They might manipulate by ignoring phone calls on purpose, being unapproachable, um, faking that they have plans, again, just to form some sense of, like, jealousy or have the partner, like reach out to them or want to connect with them or they may make try to make them feel jealous um, by like flirting with someone again manipulative behaviors so something just came to mind
0: there is not one person in this world who has a hundred percent of one uh, attachment style so what we're talking about like the different styles they may resonate within you because this is what's happening within me as I listen to you Um, you may just be more of something right so going back to the example that I gave I'm fearful. I definitely think I'm fearful avoidant, which also has like similar uh, styles of anxious attachment, what you just described. And like, I I was definitely anxious with my first boyfriend, like pu- solely anxious. Like I depended so much on him. And I think that that first rupture of whatever level of trust I put in him had caused me to kind of shift to fearful avoidance. So then I became mm-hmm. like a little more anxious and then avoidant because ooh, I can't get too close to you because it's dangerous.
1: Um, and I think I experienced something similar. I think I dated someone who was avoidant, and it sparked a lot of anxious attachment in me because I was actively being rejected and I wanted to connect with this person. And then I think like I was in another relationship where my partner was also like a little bit on the anxious side. So then it was kind of like two anxious people. And then I kind of became avoidant with him because I was like, you're t- like, this is too much for me. So like I would detach from him. And I would say now as I enter relationships, I am a little bit fearful, avoidant. Um, I think like I've learned to be very independent because I've, I feel like my experiences growing up have taught me not to rely on people. And I want to connect because I know that that's the healthy way to do things, but I'm very afraid of what that means um because i i feel like my tolerance for rejection is very low um and uh, once that rejection happens it will take a long time for me to feel safe and comfortable again to get back out there so i think there's a part of me that almost feels like rather than repeat that pattern of being afraid pushing through that fear then getting rejected and starting all over again, I'm kind of like, well, let me just avoid it altogether, which is also unhealthy. Yeah,
0: don't be dismissive avoidant.
1: (laughs) So just to finish up with the anxious avoidant piece, it can be challenging for someone who's anxious to find a secure attachment because once they finally feel safe in a relationship, none of the bells of a... Of an unhealthy relationship go off in their mind, um, and then they don't experience that need, you know, that attachment activation, um, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, because that situation of being in a secure relationship feels so unfamiliar to them, and they can't repeat the patterns. Um, if you're anxious, you have to be very conscious of how you show up. Um, Because if you and if you're anxious and you enter a a relationship with someone who's secure and it's a safer relationship, you might think like this person is not the one. Because maybe like the highs and lows that you're used to experiencing aren't there. So you think, oh, this relationship's boring. I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. This relationship doesn't excite me. They don't light a fire in me. When really what it is, is that this is just a safe relationship. All of those highs and lows aren't present because they don't need to be.
0: It takes time to get to that that mindset of, oh, this is this is what I, I desire and this is what feels good. Because you get so used to being involved and again, because it starts with your first relationships with your primary caregivers, you get so used to being involved in this tug of war kind of thing, like cat and mouse game, regardless of how that looks, whether you're with an avoidant, whether you're with um, an anxious attached person, it's a, you, you expect it. And then it becomes your definition of this is what love and care means. And until someone's like, uh, 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 this is not, this is not okay. Or until like you kind of fall flat on your face or until you start going to therapy, um, (laughs) just putting it (laughs) out there, (laughs) you eat. You don't recognize that this is unhealthy.
1: Absolutely. No, I agree. And I think also realizing it is one thing, but doing something about it is an, a whole other thing. So,
0: yeah. So, the last attachment style is unique to a specific population. So, this attachment style is disorganized. This is the one that was. Coined in later on in 1986, um, the most common cause of this is an abusive caretaker, whether it's physical, emotional, or sexual. A disorganized child fears the caretaker and their unpredictable nature of their abusive behaviors. They also want to rely on them because they need them for survival, and also caretakers will help them out with certain needs, right? Like your basic security needs, but then they're also taking away from other things when the physical, emotional, and sexual abuse is involved. Caretakers for these children are usually hostile and self-centered or they're emotionally irregular, right? So avoidance have parents who are just completely neglectful, disorganized people have parents who will sometimes meet your needs and will sometimes not. So like there's inconsistency. So it gets really confusing, aka disorganized. Uh, When the caretaker's abuse is present without any kind of solution, the baby cannot use like this organized way of dealing with the stress because they're just in their minds confused. Like, okay, do I go to them? Do I not? It doesn't just necessarily have to be the caretaker who is abusive. If the child sees that their caregiver is in a relationship with someone who is violent, they can also become disorganized. Another common cause is with caretakers who are struggling with depression, like I said, marital conflict, unresol- and, and unresolved loss of attachment figures or traumatic experiences themselves, um, which is why they're inconsistent to meeting their, their child's needs. Disorganized, when disorganized children get scared, there's never really a solution uh, they don't have the ability to focus or behave in a way that is effective to coping with their stress. They lack regulation skills and control of any kind of negative emotion. They These children are more likely to show oppositional, aggressive, and disruptive behavior in childhood or adolescence. Um, they have low self-esteem and poor social skills. So when they get into adulthood, If they haven't figured out how to effectively cope and therefore, you know, somehow change their attachment style, you will know if you meet somebody who's disorganized because they still do not have the coping skills to deal with stress. Uh, They can get very angry or violent and have a lot of issues connecting with others. They are more likely to have substance abuse issues and they're more likely to develop personality disorders. They can be really self-absorbed. And these are the kinds of people that you meet that are like, yeah, I really need to make this change. And, you know, I know I have to do it, but then it kind of, they they know that they have this desire to take control of their life and make it better, but then they don't change it. Disorganized, attached uh, people in relationships usually struggle with romantic relationships. They really want to be close. And at the same time, they, again, they have an intense fear of rejection by the romantic partner they struggle to form relationships that are long lasting. So disorganized people will usually have shorter relationships and they just keep ending because of the same reasons. They have difficulty trusting others. They desire control and it conflicts with the of the partner that they're with. And they don't budge because they don't want to budge because this is what helps them feel secure. But being their partner is a tough experience to deal with because a relationship is a two-way street disorganized, attached people cannot control or manage their feelings well, which causes them to act out. And this can get tricky in relationships because depending on how they act out, it can hurt the relationship. Like it can rupture the sense of trust, sense of safety, whatever it is that your the other partner needs. So people who are disorganized, don't have effective coping skills. So even as children, and it'll go into adulthood, you'll notice them doing this thing called freezing. It's almost as if they're paralyzed, because literally in their minds, they don't know how to act. And that's the whole point of disorganized, right? Like that's how you know, if someone or yourself is disorganized, It's you kind of freeze, you don't know whether you should move left or right you there's no kind of solution in your mind as opposed to other people will take a step back and say all right how can i deal with this they are ran by fear which makes them immobile which is why they freeze
1: well i will say disorganized attachment is i feel like not one of those attachments that gets a lot of attention so i'm glad that we were able to discuss it here because i think even just listening to you talk i have a better understanding Of of that particular attachment style, I also did want to talk about um, relationships, uh, romantic relationships, and who ends up with who. So a common combination, um, because they perfectly feed into each other, is the anxiously attached person dating an avoidantly attached person, and from personal experience, it it's a roller coaster of a ride. We'll go into the other styles in a bit, but I did want to talk about this particular relationship combination because it's very common. Um, again, because they both feed into each other. And in the book, Attached, that I mentioned earlier, They call this relationship dynamic the anxious avoidant relationship trap. Obviously, in this relationship trap, the anxious person wants intimacy and the avoidant person feels uncomfortable being close. They're attracted to each other like moths to a flame or (laughs) really, I say this is kind of the partnership that's made in attachment hell. Because I'm like mm. this, <laughs> like I've experienced it and it, it does feel that way. They pretty much, both of these people exacerbate each other's insecurities um, because the closer the anxious person wants to be, the more detached the avoidant person wants to be. And the only way to kind of break this cycle is either to end the relationship or for both partners to actively be aware of how they show up in the relationship and work towards meeting each other. In the middle ground. What are some signs of an anxious avoidant trap? One of them is the roller coaster effect. The relationship just never feels stable because the anxious person is always in a low state emotionally until the avoidant person finally fulfills their need to create connection. And then, when the, the avoidant person creates that connection with the anxious person, the anxious person goes into a high. So, the anxious person is constantly on this roller coaster ride of emotions, and it's at the whim of the avoidant person because they have to wait for that person to respond to their needs. So the second part is the emotional counterbalancing act. So avoidant people will only feel independent and powerful to the extent that their partner, the anxious person, feels needy and incapable. This is why avoidant and avoidance will never date each other because they can't feel powerful in the relationship if they don't have this power dynamic present. And to avoidant people, like, they'll work to actively Detach and move away from each other, so they'll never have that power and control because the other person also doesn't care. In the book, they call this next thing stable instability and it's that the relationship will probably last a long time but it always feels uncertain and you're always in a chronic state of dissatisfaction sometimes in these types of relationships you might think like are we really fighting about this because you're constantly fighting about things that you shouldn't be fighting about when the real root issue is not necessarily like that argument but it's the lack of intimacy between both partners One thing that the book mentions, and this is specific to this relationship, is this dynamic called life in the inner circle as the enemy. So if the anxious partner is with someone who's avoidant, the closer the anxious person becomes to the avoidant person, the worse the avoidant person treats them. Because the avoidant person doesn't like closeness, so the more you try to connect with them or the closer you are in terms of how present that relationship is, the more that they're going to detach. So the anxious person, as long as they continue to become closer and closer and closer to the avoidant person, they're pretty much the enemy, like the worst that they're going to be treated because you're activating that person's need to detach constantly. And then you always are experiencing the quote-unquote trap. And that's basically just having the eerie feeling that the relationship's not right. But you feel so connected to the person, Um, and this is for the anxious people, that you don't want to leave. But you know that it's not right, but you can't leave. Like I said, these folks just play into each other's insecurities so perfectly. And and that's why it's partnership and attachment How I like to say.
0: It's funny because even though I'm fearful avoidant, it, I, like I said earlier, it does come with that anxious piece. And yeah. I, I have elements of being anxiously attached. And, and as you're talking, I'm just like, yo, that was exactly my experience in my previous relationship. And he was completely avoidant. Uh, no doubt about it. And, and I, especially the last piece where you said um, a relationship, you know, that the relationship is not right but for, you just feel so connected to the person. Like, you don't want to leave. That was me. I didn't want to leave. And like, I knew that I, I was like, this isn't good, but I just couldn't leave. So I think that this is probably one of the most, the, the reason that we emphasize it is because it's probably one of the most unhealthy and most common uh, relationship matches, the avoidance and the, uh, the anxious attachment. However, there are other styles that usually go hand in hand. So no surprise, no surprise here. Secure and secure are most likely to end up with each other. Why? Because they got it right from the beginning. They look, it's kind of like you just know who your people are. You walk into like you walk into a club, and you're like, oh, there's VIP, that's where I'm going. <laughs> like you just <laughs> feel it, like you know. And they usually have healthy relationships. They usually have more longevity in their relationships. Uh, there's more trust, there's more commitment and interdependence. Why? Because they both come into the relationship understanding that this is what is healthy and they both seek that out without any kind of, without any barrier to them seeking it out. So a romantic partner to them is a secure base. They'll seek the support and they'll provide it back. So this is why they usually go hand in hand. The next one that you'll often find, and I know people who are in this dynamic, is the secure, the securely attached person along with the anxiously attached Uh, person. And this is where things get a little more difficult, but it could still go really, really well as long as the secure person remains secure and they, they just kind of continue to be consistent for the anxious person and the anxious person has to be willing to learn and adapt to the, the securely attached person's style of loving and being in relationships. So going back to what Crystal said, the anxious person might sit there and say, "Well, I don't think I'm in love with this person because I don't feel the highs and lows." But if an if an anxiously attached person enters a relationship understanding that the highs and the lows are no good for you, just <clears throat> by the way they're no good for you, they you you will learn And this is how this is why we say you can change your attachment style. You will learn how to value and actually love what the secure person brings, therefore bringing you closer to their realm. The securely attached person also has to learn the anxious person's ways, so that they don't take the anxiously attached person's uh, behaviors offensively. This inconsistent way of being loved by an anxious person could be triggered, could not necessarily triggering to a secure person, a securely attached person. But it could give that person reason to to question, oh, should I be in this relationship with somebody? Because they know what a healthy relationship looks like. And then that now they're spotting out unhealthy behaviors in their partner. So as long as the securely attached and the, anxio- and the anxiously attached both have an understanding of who the other person is. And they're able to communicate their needs and what's going on and coming up for them within their experience of each other. They'll be able to have a long lasting relationship.
1: Yes, absolutely. I was going to say they have to uh, make sure that they're both uh, doing the work. Mm-hmm. And speaking of doing the work, how do you even become someone who's securely attached? Because it is possible, but it takes work. Uh, The book that I read describes two main ways to work towards becoming a securely attached person. And that really is effective communication and effective conflict resolution. Um, but I also like to add, and this is something that we've been saying throughout the episode is you really need to be self-aware and um, willing to put in the work like going to therapy like actively challenging your thoughts being able to push yourself to express and push yourself out of your comfort zone in order to achieve a, a secure attachment. And it's something that you have to work on constantly. Because a lot of times, even though we can actively unlearn what we learned as children, what I find is that you don't, it, it's not a, a one and done, I'm healed. It is a lifelong practice of continuously learning and um, undoing. Just to to reiterate the book, what are the five principles of effective communication is to wear your heart on your sleeve. And I think Mm. I had a reaction with that one. I think my heart started palpitating. I was like, "Ah." Um, So you just basically need to be genuine and honest about your feelings. And this needs to be done regardless of the other person's reaction. Because I think sometimes we want to express ourselves, but we're afraid of what the other person might say or think. We have to push ourselves to just express regardless of that. Um, Because you can only have control and agency of yourself. So stand firm in, in your feelings and yourself and work towards detaching your value from what other people think another thing is just focusing on your needs Um, when you express your needs make sure to use language such as need feel and express what you want to accomplish don't focus on your partner's shortcomings but more so how what is what is coming up for you You want to make sure to always be specific. So be precise on how you feel and be precise on what you mean. Don't blame your partner. Don't make them feel selfish, incompetent, or inadequate. Effective communication isn't about making the other person feel bad or blaming them for things that you're both responsible for in the relationship. And be assertive and non-apologetic. Your needs are valid end of story like period um so don't apologize for what you need and very quickly just some principles for um conflict resolution is you definitely want to show concern for the other person's well-being you gotta you gotta make sure that they know that you care make sure that you focus on the problem at hand don't bring up what happened three years ago like come on now (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> refrain from generalizing the conflict talk about the issue at hand and don't talk about like you're always doing this so you're always doing that right because then you're generalizing it to something bigger as opposed to focusing on what's happening in the now be willing to engage emotionally and that could be challenging because a lot of what we talked about in some of the insecure attachment styles is the inability to engage emotionally again uh, just communicate your own feelings and needs in a way that is succinct, actually describes what it is that you feel, even if you need to take time to kind of like process that emotion on your own, do that um, before you can go out and, and explain to the other person so there's nothing's lost in translation.
0: So two things, something that I want to point out within effective communication is try to speak within the realm. And that's essentially what the five bullet points did. They describe speaking within the realm of your own experience with the other person, right? Like no one is ever going to make you feel some kind of way. You're experiencing it this way. And I think even just mm-hmm. that acknowledgement will be helpful to be able to start communicating with your partner or whomever you're in a relationship with and saying like, this is my experience of it. Can we clarify this? Because I don't, I don't know if I'm right, right? Like, and also recognizing that these beliefs that we have, they're irrational and they're irrational because this is, this goes way back. It goes from the the minute we were born, right? So it's solidified in us and we're trying to undo something that it's, it's deep rooted and it's going to take time. And, and this is the practice. When it comes to conflict resolution, this reminds me a lot of John Gottman's Four Horsemen that we described in the breakup episode in how you can show up for this person and how, and basically how effectively communicating will kind of get you both the people in the relationship towards a more middle ground, as opposed to each person being on their own, you know, like the, in their, the extreme opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Like, so, cause sometimes that does happen. And I think that if you recognize that, okay, I have to voice my opinions not blame, and just express how I'm showing up, then maybe we can meet more in the middle and there will be more conflict resolution.
1: That whole psychology 101 lesson. <laughs> I wanna I wanna say that is our episode. Uh, <laughs> I hope that you were able to learn a lot about attachment, be able to recognize where you land on the spectrum. And if even if you're still feeling a little bit confused, you can always Google attachment style quizzes online. And they're also a very helpful resource to just help you identify your patterns and they will go through and Ask you how you react in certain situations to help you identify your attachment style. Of course, we definitely want to hear from you. Let us know what you learned about yourself, what you learned about others. So you can always hit us up on Instagram at nevertolduspod or email us at nevertolduspod at gmail.com.
0: And make sure to come back next week so we can tell you what they never told us.